I want to uh, say hello to everyone and thank you for joining. My name is Damian Shield and I'm the Senior Director uh, for the Institute for Medical Simulation and uh, host and convener of this weekly webinar. And uh, at the Center for Medical Simulation, we work with individuals and institutions to solve very big problems that they have, whether it's in their healthcare system, around patient safety, implementation of innovation, process flow, and their approach to continuous learning for professionals, or at educational institutions like medical schools and nursing schools uh, to solve their educational situations, whether it's engaging experiential learning through healthcare simulation, and more recently, all about online learning given the COVID-19 pandemic. And so as, we, uh, as we've been doing this at Center for Medical Simulation, we decided to launch a weekly webinar series to be connected to all of you and provide a home for our own continuous development. And uh, it's my pleasure today to bring, I think, a really relevant topic and uh, fantastic colleagues and presenters, Drs. Mary Fay and Kate Morse, uh, who I uh, had the pleasure of working with for uh, a long time now, I think uh, about five years uh, or more with each of them and have gotten a chance to travel the world back when we used to do that <laughs> as, a, as a team. Um, and uh, they're going to uh, share with you all really a couple of really key aspects of teaching online and the facilitating that experiential learning experience. It's not going to be a comprehensive dissertation, although they could, on every aspect of online learning. There are textbooks and other folks who do that, really focusing on that sweet spot of what you bring as an instructor, educator, facilitator, teacher, and also how to, uh, a couple of examples from their practice on how to promote that active experiential decision-making that our students, learners, participants, colleagues really need. And so I'm looking forward to your presentation. I'll ask that you do introduce yourself and your background because I think everyone deserves to know your accomplishments and uh, how you got uh, to know this stuff. I'll be in the background. I'll be scanning your uh, questions in the chat. I'll try to address some of them as we go, but also we'll have a couple of moments where we'll pause the uh, presentation to make sure that um, anything that wasn't clear could be made more clear and any interesting topics can at least be raised. We may not get to answer all of them, but certainly they would be food for thought for future programs. So without further ado, I'll hand over to you, Mary. I think you're driving yep. and I'll uh, hide myself here. All right. Thanks so much, Damien. And uh, welcome to everybody who's with us today. And um, had you told me a year ago that I would be hosting a webinar about online learning, I would have laughed because I never thought that online learning was a good way to teach. And I have since really changed my ways of thinking about online teaching. And one of the things that Damien said in his intro that I think is, is critically important is that what this webinar is about is bringing all of your knowledge and skills and talents as a teacher into the online environment. If you enjoy being a teacher in person, all of those talents can transfer to the online environment. There's just a few extra steps we need to take along the way because of the technology we're using very similar to simulation. When we teach in simulation, we have to make a few adjustments to our teaching skills and abilities just because of the technology involved. And so that's what I really hope everybody takes away from this is if I love being a teacher in person, I can love being a teacher online too. Um, and so I'm really happy to be here today and especially with my colleague Kate. Uh, my formal title at the Center for Medical Simulation is um, Senior Director for Teaching and Learning. And so I spend a lot of time thinking about curriculum for both our in-person and our online courses. And so I'm gonna hand it over to Kate to say hi. Thanks, Mary. So welcome everyone. I'm, I'm seeing all the names pop up in the chat, in the uh, Q&A box and I, I see many familiar names and some new ones uh, from uh, multiple different places. So excited that people are here to share uh, our thinking today. So my current role is as Assistant Dean for Experiential Learning and Innovation at Drexel University in the College of Nursing and Health Professions. 
and I returned to Drexel in September of 2020 after working full-time at the Center for Medical Simulation uh, for, I think, close to five years and now still continue uh, to teach with them as available, recognizing we're in our new world. Uh, and I will tell you that all that I have learned from my colleagues at, at uh, the Center for Medical Simulation, I have used to my fullest capacity as we have, uh, you know, led the change uh, and pivoting to online uh, solely, particularly for our simulation. And we are an online university with a lot of experience, and we still had a lot of work to do and shifting in our thinking. So I'm delighted to share some of our, our lessons learned and ways that we did that and can connect the theory with the practice. So I think it'll be an interesting conversation. Mm -hmm. I think so. All right, shall we jump in, Dr. Morse? Let's go. Okay. So let's start out with thinking about what we hope to accomplish today. And um, really, uh, there are kind of two goals that Kate and I have for this webinar is one is to think about practices, things that we do as educators that really establish our presence online. And presence is capitalized there for a reason. I'm going to go into that um, in, in the early part of this webinar to discuss exactly what do I mean by presence online. And then Kate and I are going to show you a couple different ideas of how you can create experiential learning um, in the online environment. So we'll show you different ways that you can do simulations online, as Damien said, to really engage your learners uh, decision-making and, and clinical problem-solving abilities. So to get us started though, what I want to get us started with is a poll and uh, James is going to help us with this part and this poll is asking how do you really feel about online learning? And so as you're answering this question, when you hear the words online teaching, what are you most likely to think? Mary, should we read out the responses to make it a I little... Yeah, I see a lot of people answering already. So oh, so I think we're are, good. Yeah, I think we might be good. <laughs> the answers range from no way, never, I don't want to do this to yay, it's about time I've been waiting for this COVID world to come so we can teach online. All right, let's do about 10 more seconds to give people time. Just the first thing that pops into your head. All right, so is this the final of our poll? Wow, look, we've got almost half the people in the yay category. That's fantastic. About a third of you saying, okay, you know, this could be interesting. We have a couple that'll do it if they have to, and we've got a couple that are like, I don't really like this. Um, thanks, James. So, I'm thinking this, this Mary, might be a very biased sample. <laughs> yeah, because they're in an online webinar. An I, online I'm webinar. also thinking if we had done this a year ago, we would potentially have had more people in the oh. no way, never uh, category as yeah. things have shifted and uh, necessity yeah. has has forced us to change in some necessity ways. being Love the mother this. of invention yeah and you know i i have to say that i was very firmly in the no way never camp for quite some time and it's because when i'm teaching i want to be with my students i want to be there to see their eyes and watch the light bulbs go on and you know all those intimate things that can happen when you're in the same physical presence with other people but then I came to the Center for Medical Simulation and we collaborate with people from all over the world. And as I started to do more and more of that online, I was really surprised to see the connection that can happen online with a few adjustments and how we sort of conduct ourselves and the speed with which we talk and, and how we use different media. And I became a real believer. And then COVID hit and my gym went online. And I thought, well, now this is crazy. How can you do this online? You can, it requires attention. It requires some knowledge of the technology, but mostly what it really requires is the same thing that in-person teaching requires, which is just a sincere desire to help your learners 
get to a better place in their professional development. And if you've got that inside you as part of your teaching philosophy, you can teach in person or online. And I guarantee you it can be just as satisfying. And, um, you know, as a matter of fact, our flagship course is going online, necessity being the mother of invention. But I'm really excited about that because one of the things about online teaching is that it often opens you up to people who wouldn't otherwise be able to take your courses because of, you know, travel uh, and not just in a COVID world, but, you know, there are often people who couldn't come to our courses in Boston because the cost for that travel or the time for the travel was prohibitive. Online teaching takes that away. And I think one of my, um, one of the reasons I didn't, that light bulb for online teaching didn't go on for me years ago is because often when people were helping me figure out how to teach online, all they taught me to do was how to use the learning management system. And to me, the human aspect of teaching is much more important than the technology aspect. So that's what I really want to talk about in the beginning here is that sort of human aspect of teaching. And I had mentioned in the beginning that it's really important for me as a teacher to be present with my learners. And so I want to talk about that first, this idea of presence in teaching. And this comes from the Community of Inquiry Framework, which is a pretty well-known framework for thinking about teaching online. And so the Community of Inquiry Framework defines presence as the dynamic interplay of thought emotion and behavior. And as I look at that, I go, well, that's the same thing as teaching in person, isn't it? Yeah, it's exactly the same thing as teaching in person. We bring our whole selves to every encounter. The community of inquiry framework, though, helps me as a teacher to think about different ways that I'm present for my learners online and that learners are present for each other. One of the important things that happen when we form a learning community of practice is that people connect with each other. It's not just the learner connecting with the teacher, it's the learners connecting with each other. And all of those things play into online learning and teaching in the same way they do in person. So the community of inquiry framework defines three different types of presence in the online environment. There's social presence, cognitive presence, and teaching presence. And we'll look at all of these individually, but all three of these types of presence are always there when you're constructing or delivering an online course, but sometimes you titrate them up and down based on what you're trying to accomplish um, in the moment. So let's take a look at each of these things individually. And I'm purposely starting out with social presence because in my mind, teaching and learning always happens within the context of the relationships that we have with each other. And social presence is that forming of the community of practice, the forming of the teacher-learner relationship. And so social presence really comes down to, or the goal of social presence is really that we see each other as real human beings. And so one of the important ways I think to do that is to make sure that we're sharing personal stuff about ourselves as we set up our online courses. And so for example, I mentioned our, our flagship courses going online. And so as people are introducing themselves on the learning management system, everybody will be posting pictures of themselves doing something they love. So not professional headshots, but pictures of us hiking, playing with our kids, being a beekeeper, letting people see that I'm more than just a face on the screen. Having strong social presence really gives us a sense of community. And when I think about what community means, that means people coming together with shared goals who also trust each other. And I think that's a very important component of social presence is us building the trust. Because as we progress in our learning together, we have to be willing to take some risks, to be wrong in front of each other, to get feedback in front of each other, all those things that we do in simulation or in person. And when we have that sense of community and when we're connected to each other and when we see each other as real messy imperfect people but who are really striving to do something good then we can really generate a climate for high level dialogue and critical thinking in those important reflective learning conversations kate anything you want to add there before i move on to others I think, Mary, we'll double click on, on this sense of vulnerability and messiness as we get to thinking about psychological safety, not okay. only for the uh, learners, but also for the faculty. So yeah, I'll connect back to that. Thank you. Okay. 
The second type of presence to think about um, in teaching in the online environment is the idea of cognitive presence. And we know that cognitive presence is there and is strong when learners are able to engage in reflection and discourse. And so this may take the form of the, the learning leader, the teacher presenting a problem, expecting the learners to sort of explore, gather more data, um, ask more questions. We used, to, we used to talk a lot about problem-based learning back in the 80s and 90s. So it's that sort of idea of giving people the stem of a problem, but then expecting them to explore, gather more data, ask more questions. And then once that data is gathered, we as the facilitator helping the learners integrate all that information to create a picture of what's going on in this situation. Often for us, it's the picture of what's going on with a patient. But then importantly, thinking about how we're going to solve this problem in a way that it gets resolved for the learners so that they have some understanding of what was the correct course of action, where might have I gone down the road that wasn't exactly the right course of action. And research shows us that often in online learning environments, we're really good at presenting the problems. And we're really, the learners and, and we are generally pretty good at that exploration phase of gathering more data to more clearly define the problem. But where we fall apart is that integration and resolution. And in my mind, that's the part where we really bring in diverse perspectives and help people see the problem from many different angles before we can move on to resolution. And then the third type of presence is your teaching presence. And this is your ability as the facilitator of the learning experience, first of all, to design a comprehensive learning experience. So starting with your needs assessment and developing clear and measurable learning objectives. And then thinking about how you're going to facilitate this. We'll show you some examples today of simulations um, that require a little bit of media and some technology, but you can certainly facilitate conversations just the way we are now, just online having a normal conversation. Sometimes for people who are more introverted, they actually like discussion questions and posts where they can be a little more thoughtful and gather their thoughts before they, they share an answer. And so thinking about facilitating the learning and the reflection in many different ways can be helpful. And then directing the teaching experience. When you're in the online environment, learners don't have the social support of being in the room with other people. They can't look to others for nonverbals and reassurance. And so our role as directors in giving really clear instructions and making sure people understand um, what's needed next can be an important part of, of the online learning experience, more so than in person. But I think Kate is going to talk about that some when she moves on to talk about psychological safety. Anything else you want to add there, Kate? I do not. I think I'm ready to move I'm on. Enjoying and learning. So please let's keep going. All righty. To you. Fantastic. Thank you. So we're going to add on to Mary's uh, foundational underpinnings and talk about psychological safety. So as many of you know, psychological safety is creating a space where your team or your learning group feels comfortable taking risks, appearing vulnerable, discussing mistakes, speaking up. And I think it, particularly in the online environment, psychological safety is, is a critical element to success. And as all of us have had to pivot in a very rapid fashion to support our learners in a different way, I, I really thought a lot about psychological safety as a, as a group of nesting bowls. So we as the simulation center were responsible for holding the big bowl at the bottom. And in that bowl included uh, me holding it for all our simulation staff and teaching them how to change how they work. Uh, and that was also educating our deans to say, yeah, normally we do have beds and equipment and stuff and we're doing things and yes, we're doing that online. So creating psychological safety for the staff, creating psychological safety safety for our uh, instructors and faculty because for a lot of them, as Mary talked about her journey, didn't feel completely comfortable about switching online. And how, how does that work? How can I even envision it? I'm going to look on prepared and, and stupid in front of my students 
we are going to help you do that. And we're going to look at mistakes as learning opportunities. And then the faculty hold it for the learners. So there's this underlying bowl network in my brain to see how it works. And I think this psychological safety is critically important in the virtual space. So Mary, let's go to the first bullet point um, with that underpinning. So we talked about no fear of shame or humiliation. And I think the key piece is talking about how we discuss errors because obviously in the online environment, there are a lot more things that we can't control like Wi-Fi, power outages and how our technology is working. So I think that's an important piece to be explicit about to help create that environment for your learners. And our next bullet, Mary. So this is an important piece for everybody because the goal is not to have a stress-free learning environment because we know without some stress on us, we're not going to change. And granted, I feel like we're all experiencing very high levels of stress at this moment and there's been a lot of change uh, motivated by that level of stress, but it's not the goal. And I think helping people, and I hear our students saying this frequently now, it's all about getting comfortable with being a little uncomfortable in the service of learning. Mm -hmm. And our next bullet, Mary. Oh, sorry. There we go. Just said that. I'll go to the next one. <laughs> and the next one. So one of the things that we learned early on um, that was really important to psychological safety for everyone in this environment is how do we create order at a disorientation? This can be an extremely disorienting environment as learners come in and we, they are having encounters with patients and they're having uh, online simulations and Mary's going to show some examples of the ones that she's worked with where our fidelity is different how we can set it up is different so the we have to be able to create order for them and that's one of the primary drivers of them feeling mm -hmm. psychologically safe and being able to um, share their thinking and make and make errors and discuss them so that means that we have to say things multiple times, multiple ways, in multiple modalities of orienting people, of supporting people, and having levels of support throughout the experience, even more transparent than we normally are in person. And I know that we all have a commitment to that in person, and I will say we've learned that we have to have a heightened commitment in line. And no matter how many times you say it, uh, it's always important to say it again, because we've all had the experience where technology is not working and our own level of stress increases and creeps up to that non-thinking state. So they're not hearing what we're saying because they're worried about logging on, getting their camera to work, having their audio work in order to have a, a simulation encounter. Mm -hmm. So us supporting that, critically important. Yeah. So Mary, know, I wanna, yeah, go ahead. I just want to add, you know, as, as I hear you describe that, I think about, you know, when we're in person with other learners that you, you kind of gain a lot of comfort from people being in close physical proximity to you. You know, I'm one of those people that doesn't always pay attention so well, especially to directions. But I know that in class, if the instructor says, you know, we're about to do this exercise, you have to do A, B, C, and D, that if I don't catch all of it, I know I can just like look at my buddies on either side of me and figure out what they're doing and they'll, they'll, they'll get me through and I can hide the fact that I don't know what I'm doing. Different online. I think this is a great example of one of those, those uh, times when you can absolutely accomplish the same thing. You just have to take a couple extra steps. Mm -hmm. And so, for example, if you're in a, a Zoom webinar like this, and if I were going to be sending people to breakout rooms to do work individually, I would have a screen that had very explicit instructions of exactly what they're going to do. What is the timing? What is the deliverable? Um, and, and go over that. Because as our learners get more anxious, as you just described, if the technology is not working, if they're not clear what they're doing, it becomes a cognitive load issue. And mm -hmm. they won't be able to do the important thinking work we want them to do if they're not feeling supported and directed. That's teaching presence online right there is a great yes. example. So. Yeah, yeah, that, I think that is such a great uh, mm -hmm. illustration. And until you've had the experience, and I say you're so right, Mary, that it, you're not able to follow because you're in your own space, clicking your own mouse, clicking your own <laughs> desktop right. and going, which button do I push? What did they say? What so they the, say? Yeah. yeah, so I think it's just a, um, and it, it is not a reflection of their level of interest. 
it's a reflection, I think, of the environment we're in. Yeah. And, and by holding the basic assumption about our learners, uh, we can understand that that's going to be uh, part of the process. So, Mary, I think we're ready to move on to the next slide. Okay. So, of course, I have a strong belief, as I'm sure all of you do as well, that pre-briefing orienting our learners to what's coming, what the expectations are, and Mary, we're going to click through our buttons um, as we come up, are really important for success. So I love that we're talking about pre-briefing for a course. So it may be something you do in your bigger course that you are teaching, and then nested inside of that is a, an event, which might be an experiential learning. And so you're gonna pre-brief for that again, or it may be a full day of activities. Pre-briefing to me is always the faculty member's friend and it helps get our learners prepped and set and headed in the right direction. So being explicitly clear about what are the objectives of this learning experience, how do they connect to the student's success, how do they connect to what they're going to do in real life because for all our clinical students, regardless of their, their specialty, they are struggling with not having real patient encounters. So how do we connect that? How do those learning objectives in this space um, connect to that? What are their roles? Who are they in this space? Who are they gonna visit in this space? And, and saying it multiple times in multiple ways and what are the expectations of the day? Is this formative? Is it summative? Formative being an assessment for learning, summative being of learning. And so they understand exactly what's gonna happen and then talking about the limitations of the environment. So we think about this in simulation and now we need to think about it in the online environment because it is different, there are limitations and I promise you that once people get over the hump and connect it to the event, they're in. And by and large, it, they, they have that little bit at the beginning and then they really feel like they're able to get connected. So limitations of the environment, being trans, um, transparent with what those are, and what's going to happen if they get stuck so they know how help's coming. Um, and our next button. Logistical details. Where are we sending them? Because they, they may have multiple online links to go to different places, the virtual simulation room, the debriefing room. Uh, they may be going into a wraparound for their summative evaluation so their videos can be cataloged in a way that's meaningful for the faculty. So having that written, saying it verbally, putting it in the chat boxes so they have it available, giving them multiple ways to call for help, all critically important. And our next one. And then expressing respect for the learners. I think we are all in the same swimming pool here. We're all <laughs> learning um, how to bend technology to our advantage and understanding the challenges that we can have and recognizing that we can provide engaging, excellent learning experiences in a different way beyond what we have even imagined. So I feel that that connection and that um, respect for the learners, we're in with them and I think that that makes it a collaborative process. And we think about respect for the learners, of course, being encapsulated in the basic assumption. And as a reminder, the basic assumption is that we believe everyone participating in activities at the Center for Medical Simulation is intelligent, capable, cares about doing their best, and wants to improve. And certainly, as we have all learned and been uncomfortable as we've switched and pivoted to uh, meet our learning needs in the COVID-19 environment. We've had to hold it about ourselves because we've made, you know, collectively, it's been a struggle. We've made mistakes, we've learned, we've built as we've gone along. The learners to hold it about us and the learners to hold it about themselves because they're doing their very best in a space that's unusual with a lot of additional stress. 
And I think this just sets us up for success. So we, in our pre-briefing, we have standard pre-briefings that we do in all our courses that includes this. We refresh this the day of, we refresh this in debriefing. And uh, as I said to Mary the other day, I knew I got it when we had a student email us and say, can I use the basic assumption? And, and, and I wanna share it with others, I was like, oh, that is the pinnacle of penetration. So I think this is really what allows us to take all these risks and is, is so important. Agreed, agreed. And then another great example of something we do in person translates to online. Yeah. So Damien, I, this might be a good spot for us to pause and um, see if there are any questions. So Mary, I, we don't have any uh, questions lined up here, so I think a pause is good. So I think if anyone uh, has a, a clarifying question or a topic that would like to bring up here um, as these folks are uh, getting ready to transition from their conversation around teaching presence to some of the examples. So uh, Kate and Mary, so um, one question, I'll give you a couple of questions and then you guys decide how to tackle them. So if you have multiple people in a Zoom window, like a surgical team, uh, you want to empower a particular team member, like for example, nursing, how do you bring them up without singling them out? So mm -hmm. facilitation skills. Mm -hmm. And another question is uh, just in any kind of nitty gritty experiences on your breakout room um, experience so far, how do you pull it off? How does it work? Uh, I think uh, uh, and reading a third question here, um, uh, curious about the decision to use Zoom that doesn't have uh, participants visible. Uh, so I think the question from uh, Shannon is, how do you choose the webinar format, what we're doing now versus the interactive meeting style uh, mm -hmm. platform of Zoom? So I think those are uh, three questions you guys could sink your teeth in. Yeah, good questions. Good questions. Kate, you want to jump onto any one of them first? I would love to. Thank you. Uh, so I, I'm going to uh, jump on and, and talk about how do we um, interact with our participants and, and sort of get engagement, because I do think that's important. So all of our debriefings are conducted in Zoom and part of the pre-planning and the expectation is that you have both audio and video and I'm able to see everyone in my debriefings and the pre-briefing piece in the debriefing or setting up the experiences, you know, we're going to have this conversation, we're going to reflect on the experience that you had as a team, our normal way of introducing it. And because we're in this environment and it's easy to speak over people, I'm going to be calling on people intermittently just to be sure that I'm getting um, uh, participation from everyone and you're having an opportunity to talk. And I have you all up in my square and I can see everybody. Uh, so as we're in the discussion, I'm, I'm gonna be you know, checking in with everybody while we're, we're working through it. So I, I just preview that I'm gonna be calling on people um, or if I ask a question and throw it out to everybody, I will say, you know, I'm going to throw it out to everybody. It's okay if we talk over while we just have this conversation uh, and try and narrate as I go along. Mm -hmm. Yep, it reminds me of our old sort of belief that a good debriefing starts in the pre-briefing and yeah. you know, setting people up for what they can expect is key so that so that then when you say, oh, you know, Kate, I, I would love to hear like from a nurse practitioner's perspective, how are you seeing the situation? It becomes not threatening that then mm -hmm. it's just an invitation um, to participate. Yeah. One of the other things actually Kate and I were talking about yesterday is one of the other things that we do when pre-briefing an online course is we let people know that the expectation is that their cameras will be on. Now, if we're doing a course that has 150 people in it, cameras often can't be on because it becomes a bandwidth issue um, or there's no way I can visually keep track of 150 people. And so, you know, one of the questions that dovetails with the other question of, you know, you choose Zoom, how do you decide cameras on, cameras off? I would really tie that back very much to what my learning objectives are. And if what I'm really looking for in this session with my learners is 
you know, a real dialogue, a reflective dialogue where we need to sort of bounce ideas off of each other and understand each other's thinking about something in a deeper way. I definitely want cameras on for that. Um, even though we can't technically make eye contact, I can still see you and read your nonverbals and you can see me and read my nonverbals to, to a better degree if, if cameras are on. Now, in a format like this, we don't have the cameras on today because this, in our mind, is a webinar, which is more of us sharing information. Um, if you were to take our more extensive online uh, teaching course that we do, um, then there would be cameras on because that would be a situation where I would, you know, present a problem and want to hear how, how you might work through it or, or gather people's ideas about that. Mm -hmm. Oh, there was, and then there was another, oh, I'm sorry, did you want to say something more there, Kate? No, I think I was just going to move us on to the breakout rooms, and I, I'm also looking at time, Mary, uh, so. Thank you for that. Move us on to breakout rooms. Okay, all right. Uh, so the, there were a couple of questions around breakout rooms, and I think that breakout rooms can be incredibly powerful and slightly disorienting because you get to have the magic of the internet and put people in different places. So previewing what that is is really important. Um, and we utilize a, a waiting room process. So as people come into the waiting room, we've already set up a schedule and a grid. And then uh, when they come in, we talk in the large group and then say to them, okay, we're gonna now put you into your breakout rooms, talk about what the goals and expectations in those breakout rooms are. And we might have, we've, I think at the most we've had is maybe 15 or 20 breakout rooms uh, in a session. And we just have a grid that we follow. They know what, um, it's going to happen in that room. They know how to call for help while they're in there. So it could be a debrief breakout room. It could be the encounter debrief uh, breakout room. And it, it is just, you can simulate that and play around with it with your team ahead of time. So you get comfortable with putting people in and out and figuring out how do I get in if they need help? What do I do? Uh, and it makes it very easy. So we did a lot of simulations of the, the process but I think it, it really helps people feel like they're going into, you know, they're in the Sim Center, now they're going into the room, and then you're coming back for a bigger conversation. Yeah, and, and interactions are different when it's a small subset of the larger group. And so often send people to breakout rooms, have them grapple with a problem, come back and share how, yeah. how the different groups did it. And if you don't care who's in the groups, Zoom very quickly and easily will randomly assign people to breakout yes. rooms. Um, yeah. But then there are times when you want to control who the groups are and that needs to get set up ahead of time. But, you know, I found it to be a pretty smooth process. But like Kate said, I, I practiced with it before I did it. I actually got all my nieces and nephews to get on Zoom with me one Sunday afternoon yeah. and played with breakout rooms uh, with them. So, yeah. so do practice because you do want it to be smooth. It doesn't yes. always work perfectly, um, yeah. but I think it offers real advantages. And, you know, just the change in pace of listening to the um, instructor, going to a small breakout room for discussions, coming back, like changes of pace in the course are really important for keeping people interested and engaged too. Mm -hmm. All right, I and I would say, Mary, the, the wrap up while we go to the next slide is that the use of breakout rooms and the use of any of this additional technology is all driven just like it is in simulation by your learning objectives. You're not gonna add something just because we can do it, um, but as long as it's in the service of, of the learners reaching the learning objectives. Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay, so I, Kate and I have got a couple of examples of things to show you here next. And so the first um, video that I'm going to show you is, you know, a kind of a low tech um, way to engage your students in some decision making. And so just to, to frame what this is, I had a couple of first semester nursing students um, agree to join me to work through the simulation, which is basically an unfolding case study. And I've added some media just to, to highlight some points I'm trying to make. I show them a picture of their patient. And so they are told, you won't see me setting up the simulation, we sort of jump in midpoint, but what I've told them is that they're caring for a, a post-op uh, patient who had a ruptured diverticula and he's been pretty stable and they're gonna be caring for him in the PACU and he's getting antibiotics. So let's just have a look at this. And as you're looking at this, just notice that, that the format is, I give them a little information, they have to ask the right questions to get more information to sort of progress through the case. And so it unfolds based on the questions and answers. Yeah, pulse ox, like, what do you do? 
Okay, so check a pulse ox. Okay, so his, his uh, O2 sat's 95% right now. So he says to you now a little bit more urgently, like, really, like, guys, I really feel like I'm having trouble breathing. Like, could you set the, bed of my, the head of my bed up? I, I need to sit up higher. You need more information. What else do you want to know here? Lung sounds. Okay, great. So you listen to his lungs, and you hear lots of inspiratory wheezing in the upper lobes. I, I mean, I think of wheezing, I think of asthma. Okay, so you think of asthma. I like that you're thinking of asthma. So let's think about this guy. Diverticulitis, which means his bowel ruptured inside his stomach, which means all those bowel contents got out into his stomach. And so he's on antibiotics. So the nurse that gave you report um, said that she just hung his antibiotics and gave him his pain medicine. Let me show you one other thing and see if this gives you a little bit more evidence of what could be going on with this guy. And if not, that's totally cool. You can just say that doesn't help Mary. You allergic to the antibiotics? Ah, oh, there you go. So now he's got a rash all over his chest. So possibly an allergic reaction to the antibiotic that is uh, hanging. So you're thinking he's got wheezing, he's got this rash on his chest. What are the nursing interventions that should happen in pretty quick succession here? Stop the antibiotics. Amen, stop the antibiotics. Should he be on oxygen if he's having trouble breathing? Okay. Might not be a bad idea to have a little something Make him doing not there. so anxious and more comfortable. Yeah. Because so if it gets worse before it gets better. You got some oxygen on, you stop the antibiotics. What else you want to do? I think you're going to want to call the provider pretty soon. Yeah. So um, get like a most recent set of vitals. Get prepared to make that phone call. So we're going to call this one to a close. So this was followed by a summary discussion where we reflected back on some of the main events that happened in this case and the decisions that the students made. And so with these unfolding cases, you can certainly take them in any direction based on the learner's response. And so to prepare myself, I sort of had an if-then decision-making tree um, as we went through this simulation. So that's a pretty straightforward unfolding case study. I want to show you um, another example of a way to do simulation online. And this whole video is 14 minutes. I do not want to subject you to a 14-minute video. But, but what I want to do is show you a couple of the highlights. And so this starts out with me doing a brief sort of handoff, as nurses would do if they were uh, assuming the care of a new patient. I'll show you that briefly. Then I'm going to stop the video. Then I'm going to fast forward it to the point at which they see their patient. So when they see their patient, a picture of Mr. Smith, their patient, um, appears on the screen and I, as the facilitator, turn off my video. I'm no longer there. I become the voice of the patient. So you'll see them with their initial contact with the patient. I'm going to pause there and then I'm going to fast forward to a point where I bring in the monitor. So we use an app called SimMon, M-O-N, which is a pretty cheap app. Um, it's easy to use in the online environment on your phones, on iPads. And I'll show you how they respond to changes in the patient's vital sign. Then I'm going to fast forward to the beginning of the debriefing. And what I really want you to notice in the debriefing is how engaged these students were in this simulation, which I think is really the coolest thing. So let's have a look at, at selected pieces of this video. Ready? Okay, so your patient is Mr. Smith. Mr. Smith is a 72-year-old man who was admitted to the hospital to have an angioplasty done. And he developed some bleeding complications in his groin, and so they've decided that he needs to stay overnight just for monitoring. Okay, so they get a little bit of a handoff report. They get the patient's past medical history and all those um, important points. And I'm just going to bring us forward now to the point at which Mr. Smith shows up. And they have their initial encounter with Mr. Smith. Whenever you are ready, can come in and say hello to Mr. Smith. Are you Mr. Ready? Smith, I'm Maggie. Hi, I'm girls. One of your nurses. Hi. Hi, Mr. Smith. I am your other student nurse, Juliet. Hi, girls. How are you doing today? Oh, I don't know. I guess I'm, I guess I'm doing okay. I don't know. You know, my, that thing that was bleeding it seems to be okay. Can you, um, can you tell me? 
So they do their initial assessment on Mr. Smith um, and eventually Mr. Smith tells them that he's feeling a little bit short of breath. So I'm gonna fast forward us now to the point where I bring in the monitor. Covering, can you tell us if you have any pain right now? Oh, I'm just having trouble breathing. Oh, trouble breathing, okay. Um, how long have you been having that pain? Let's elevate the head of your bed if you're not already elevated. Yeah, put it up a little bit higher, honey. That's good. I, this just started. It just started a little while ago. Whew. Can we get some vitals? Okay. Okay, so Maggie, what do you think? His O2 is like kind of low. Yeah. Um, I, I, he's on Romare. Yeah. Okay, so maybe we want to give him some O2. What do you think? Mm -hmm. I know you can give O2 and ask for an order later, but. Yeah, I would give him O2. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oops, I'm sorry. So the students went on in this um, simulation to address Mr. Smith's shortness of breath. They asked for his lung sounds, which I just told them. Technology that you can do that with also. I want to fast forward us now to the beginning of the debriefing. Um, just because I think it's really interesting how engaged they were in this. Okay, so you guys have made a decision to call the provider. I'm going to end this simulation because I think that's exactly the point I wanted you guys to get to. So let's go right into debriefing. So to get our debriefing started, I'm going to start out by asking you guys how you're feeling right now. Sweaty. I felt stressed. Like, I know it wasn't real, but I felt like I don't know what's wrong with this patient. <laughs> Awesome. So sweaty and <laughs> a, little, a little nervous. <laughs> All right. Well, I'll tell you what, I heard some things I really liked. I think there's some opportunities to tie a few more things together. So just so we're all on the same page about what was going on with Mr. Smith and what was happening this morning was that Mr. Smith developed some pulmonary edema, probably related to his heart failure. What I want to talk about in this I don't want to go um, into the whole debriefing, but I will say, guys, that as this debriefing progressed, we explored nurses' decision-making with regard to oxygen. Uh, one point in the simulation, Mr. Smith asked to get out of bed, and they thought that was a good idea. So we talked about why that was not such a great idea and how do you manage um, oxygen demand and activity intolerance in a patient with heart failure. So it was a really rich discussion. And at the end of the debriefing, what um, Juliet and Maggie both said was, I wish we could have all of our clinical experiences this way. It was so great to be presented with a problem, no instructor in the room, we had to make decisions and then we got to really dive into those decisions afterward. And so they found it a really rewarding experience, which, you know, because we're all teachers, makes it a really rewarding experience for us too. And they had some pretty powerful takeaways from the simulation also. So, so Mary, if, if yeah. I might uh, bring you a, just two clarifying questions before, uh, um, we move from from here. So one is about the case study uh, mm -hmm. in terms of deciding uh, of the options that you have. Do you do it as an asynchronous, send it ahead of time versus uh, doing it as a discussion? How do you decide? Mm -hmm. The other um, question was just more technical around Simmon. How do you get to share it um, online through okay. the screen share? So those were the mm -hmm. two main questions. And great questions. Um, and you know, I think written case studies or this more live case studies are both good. They both have their place. I think that especially when information is very new and people may need a little bit more time to sort of think and process and double check themselves, a written case study can be very helpful because it moves a little more slowly. Like any simulation we do, once people have kind of grappled with the information and have a pretty good knowledge base and are really ready to try and apply that knowledge, that's when I would move to a more dynamic case like this. So you certainly could have given them the Mr. Smith written case a week ago and let them work on that and then bring them in and have them, have them do it live. It's still challenging live even if they worked through it, um, even if they worked through it on, in a paper case. 
Um, you know, the answer about Simmon, I'm going to defer because James Lipshaw, our instructional designer, actually helped me with that, Damien. And um, I did not integrate that, but I think Kate has some experience with it. Kate, have you integrated Simmon? And can you speak to the technical aspect of that? Sure, absolutely. And I, I'm guessing that there are probably many ways to do it. So I'll just say how we did it. And uh, we uh, had it on an iPad because it, it had some limitations in terms of how, what devices it can be run on. And our instructor uh, shared their screen which was um, the iPad, so they had it connected, and then they ran it off of the iPad. And it, I think that this is, it's, what, $20, $25, something like that. And it, it adds a, a really nice level of uh, engagement because students can make decisions, they can see their decisions reflected in the vital signs. And I think that also having the vital signs up them if they're not making decisions, gives them that little sweaty watching the numbers go down and worry and gets engagement and gets, and I see a question around emotional engagement. And I think that is one of the things that, that drives that emotional engagement because they see things changing, perhaps not in a, in a good direction. So that's how we did it. And it worked, it worked quite well, but obviously it takes, um, you know, someone dedicated to doing that, someone driving the simulation. Um, and we, and I can describe how we did that in more detail as we move through this slide. All right, you ready to go on the virtual escape lab? I am. Right. So uh, while Mary- time also, uh, Kate, so. Say that again, Mary. Monitoring time, we've got maybe five or six minutes. Here. Yes. Okay. I, I'm, I'm right with you. I'm, uh, so thank you for that uh, orientation check. So okay. one of the things that we just wanted to touch on was different ways that we had uh, pivoted and created uh, experiential learning opportunities online. One of those is a virtual escape room. So we did an in-person escape room and an escape room, uh, for those of you who may not do this in your center or have interest in gaming, is really where you go into a, a room where you are literally locked in. You have to solve puzzles in order to get out. So you have clues, solve puzzles in order and make the right choices. So we created one around pathophysiology to help our undergraduate nursing students put the picture together and then we moved it into an online environment uh, when we had to pivot to being on um, online so you can see the the learners log in they get um, a history of the patient what their job is so they get a scenario and and they understand that their group has 15 minutes to collectively work through the problem and recognize we're going to show you a little clip of a video that our uh, professors made and this is uh, Penny Parker and Jen Carroll. And they did this in their house in order to provide experiential learning for uh, their undergraduate students, which is wonderful. And yes, you know, it's not a professional video. So I'm just going to show you a little snippet so you can see what the learners would see. And it's an opportunity for them to get clues in a different way. So they're, they're using a, a different medium. So go ahead, Mary, and click start. Let's see what happens. Hello, my name's Patty Parker. I'm your nurse for today. Can you tell me your name and date of birth? Oh, it's uh, John Smith, May 12th, 1956. 1956. Okay, so you are who I think you are. It looks like they couldn't find an adult room for you, so they put you in the pediatric way. All I can get is Nickelodeon on the TV. Oh, my goodness. I, I like Nickelodeion. No, well, it's that's good. a good the Cartoons are great. Good. I see you had food and drinks here. Uh, my family always takes good care of me whenever I'm in the hospital. So thank you, Mary. We can pause there. So you can see that there are cues and she's going to go ahead and continue the history. And one of the cues was holding up of the French fries, the ubiquitous McDonald's French fries. And then, then the team has to answer a question. So does it, and so this is their clue to move on. So Mary um, chose no. So she immediately gets uh, feedback and, and then she gets to choose the other answer, which is yes, and then she immediately gets feedback. And once they get the right answer, they get to move to the next level. So there are a number of these little puzzles they have to solve. And Mary, I'm thinking we'll go back to the slide so we just have a flavor 
of what the puzzles are in the interest of time. So the students get to. Can I show the picture because I think the picture is cool. Of because course you can. That's another element. Of course, absolutely. Um, so that was clue one. Then they get successful. They get to go to clue two and they get to put together, oh, this is what it looks like for someone to have edema. And they get to see the picture, interpret labs. So again, putting together the big picture, which is really important, making connections. And then they have application questions down here. So part of the... Uh, the learning objectives are around understanding the pathophysiology of heart failure. Again, they get to choose an, uh, an answer and they get immediate feedback and then they have a subsequent answer. And once they get these right, they get to go to the next puzzle. And once they solve all those puzzles, if they solve them within 15 minutes, yay, they, they get out and they escape. Um, and what we've done is we, we time them and then we have a fun little exercise of which team got to get out the fastest. And so it's based on gaming theory. Um, and I think it's just another fun way to engage the learners. The other two things that I wanted to touch on was uh, the idea of utilizing standardized patients in the online environment. So you see the picture on the left-hand side of your screen where you have learners around a standardized patient, uh, breaching social distancing rules. So obviously we can no longer do that. The move to the telehealth where you see on the right-hand side of our screen and engaging with learners online was incredibly successful. And I think we all recognize that telehealth is never going away again, so we need to arm our learners with those skills as well. But setting up those encounters, so shifting some of the learning objectives, dealing with the fact that you can't do physical exam as, the, as you would in real life, uh, but figuring out a way to provide that data for the learners in the context of a history and taking uh, encounter for someone who's there for hypertension follow-up is important and there's lots of different ways of doing it reading off the physical exam findings ha holding up cards uh, providing it afterwards and connecting it with them writing notes about their encounter and having a reflective uh, debriefing conversation afterwards so standardized patient encounters could be a one-on-one -on -one encounter one student one student, one patient, or it could be a group. So you as a faculty member are only limited by your imagination. <laughs> and no, I do not have COVID. I have, <laughs> I have a dry mouth, so apologies for that. Uh, and it allows, uh, I think, a high level of learner engagement because they get to have a conversation with a real person. They, they are so excited and happy they get to see a patient because many of them are not in clinical practice right now. Shifting, and you saw the uh, monitor of Simmon, integrating that into those encounters can be very helpful and add a level of engagement for the learners. And it's all focused on what are you as a faculty member trying to accomplish? So that's the question we ask our faculty member. What do you want your learners to accomplish? Now we're gonna design it to make it happen in the online environment. Not picking up the same thing and doing it in, the, in a different space because we have to make some pivots around how we design things, but we can still get to the same learning um, objectives with a high level of engagement. Mary, one line about debriefing, because I think this was such a powerful learning opportunity for me, was that you think we can't be in all these rooms if we have 10 breakout rooms, so you are not able to see and hear what people do, and you think, how can I possibly debrief? The answer is you can, and it can be just as engaging. You just need to add a little layer in of collecting some data, and because you've created a psychologically safe learning environment, people are really willing to share their personal experience with their patients. So it can absolutely happen. I'm done. I know I'm over. Thank you, Kate. <laughs> Damien, there's Damien. Okay. <laughs> well, uh, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Morrison Fay, uh, for ordering our thinking on these topics. I think my takeaways are we do not have to be perfect at this, we just have to get out there. Uh, don't throw out the baby with the bathwater, so keep your best practices. 
at the same time, many aspects or maybe all of them need to be adjusted and reconsidered. And uh, thank you for the colorful examples and opportunities to meddle in that. I um, appreciate everyone's engagement and uh, questions. We try to rattle off uh, a bunch of comments there and I reposted the helpful comments that I got from many of you. I, uh, we're gonna be on summer break for the next two weeks. So we'll be back with weekly webinars on August 5th for a very special program called Broaching Race and Racism in Debriefing and Team Simulations. I think it's gonna be an excellent discussion from real uh, professionals and experienced folks in the area. I think we're gonna all learn a lot. I highly encourage folks to come back for that. At the end of August, we're gonna have a deep dive on online learning with Mary and the CMS team, a three-day experience to really make your teaching online Zoom, no pun intended, Zing and Zoom. And um, I uh, just wanna wrap up and get you all out on time to say that at CMS, we're prepared to join your team online uh, through uh, synchronous and asynchronous methods to help you in problem solving. So whether it's for you to join us on a short half a day course, a two to three day course or a week long program or a more lengthy ongoing consulting engagement, we'd love to hear from you. You can reach Mary and I and the rest of the team through our website on Twitter or um, or through this QR code. Thank you again for joining and for all of your positive feedback. Look forward to learning more from you in your evals, which you'll get once you uh, end this session. So thank you again, Kate and Mary, for your valuable insights and time on this. And uh, that's echoed from everyone else. And uh, see you all in a couple of weeks.